I'm Rob. And I'm Nate. And welcome back to Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. This is week three of our 2021 Christmas movies. And this was, again, my pick for tonight. Mm -hmm. And I would like to start off by pointing out one thing. The selection for tonight's movie was picked well in advance of showing Nate mixed nuts. Mm -hmm. So this was not me going out of my way for a makeup call. This was picked well in advance. Well, if you're going to do that, I'm just going to take back my most improved performance award. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, I would say it's some possibly deserved because I, I mean, sure, I threw a wild card, but I, it was with this in the in the back, oh, okay. you know. Uh, yeah. Anyways, so tonight's movie is the 1940 film "Remember the Night." Indeed. Have you seen this before? Never seen it. I've been long away, uh, long aware of it. I have almost rented it, but I have never seen it before. Good. So, I mean, so this was picked in large part with Nate in mind. Mm -hmm. I did some research planning this month's movies, including searching quite a few titles across Nate's blog. Uh, For those of you who are interested, it's his other band at .blogspot.com. Yeah. And I did quite a bit of searching to ensure that any of the movies that I was planning to possibly show Nate this month were not on his blog, which would mean that he hadn't seen it mm, roughly since the last fifteen years. Yeah, that it's not. Yeah, so that, that meant it was open game. I was not positive that Nate had never seen this movie, but if it wasn't on his blog, I figured it was open game. It also looked good enough that I was surprised I had not heard of this movie before. Yeah. Um, I was not really aware of this movie until I started searching for some titles, some different out-of-the-box Christmas movies. I mean, I've made it to middle age without being really being aware of this movie, so I would say I was going a little bit out of yeah, the box. Yeah, yeah. yeah, first thoughts, Nate? Well, it... Did you want to give your thoughts, or do you want me sure. to give my thoughts? First? I can go first. Okay. It, it has kind of your conventional meet cute scenario but it's played a little bit differently and for me it it really worked it was it was pleasant it was you know there's a lot of little twists and turns and you know things that that come along the way in some ways it's conventional and in some ways it's unconventional but it was a lot of fun you know i really enjoyed this movie so mm-hmm. yeah should we tell them what the plot is yeah so the plot is you have John Sargent, who is played by Fred McMurray, who is a prosecutor in New York City, and he specializes in prosecuting women. And we have Barbara Stanwyck, who plays Lee Leander, who is arrested for stealing from Myers Jewelry. Myers and Company Jewelry. Yeah. Yep. And so he's hired, you know brought in to prosecute her, and it's right before Christmas, and her attorney in his closing argument it's says very that she's... Very theatrical attorney. Yeah. And in his closing argument, says that she's been hypnotized, and John Sargent, played by Fred McMurray, is afraid that he's losing the case to the jury, but he takes her attorney's argument that she's been hypnotized and says, well, we need an expert to come in and testify this. We need a continuance till after Christmas so we can get the expert back in here and gets the case continued so that he can get a, a conviction after the holiday. But he feels bad about putting... Lee Leander, played by Barbara Stanwyck, in jail over the the holidays, and so he brings in the bondsman and helps Fat Mike. her. Helps, yeah, brings in Fat Mike, and helps her get bonded out. Fat Mike, though, 
misinterprets and brings her. Yeah, thinks the intention is, I want this girl at my apartment. So yeah. he takes the girl to the apartment where he lives with his problematic manservant, who we may revisit. Yeah. And, and Fat Mike is played by Tom Kennedy. I'm looking for his manservant, whose name is Rufus, played by Fred Snowflake Tunes. Who's so. billed in, in, the, in the film, in the credit, Snowflake. That's all they bill him as. As Snowflake Rufus. In, in, the, in the credits, they say Rufus played by Snowflake. Oh, really? Huh. Which is how you bill an animal. Wow. I mean, it's it's it's. I missed that. It's really problematic. We'll we'll have to get back to it. Yeah, I mean that's clearly the biggest flaw in this movie. Yeah, mm. yeah. But yeah, so anyways, he uh, bonds her out, and once she realizes that he's not bonding her out with the intention of taking advantage of her, and that she's free to go, she's kind of like, well, now you kind of didn't do me a favor because now I have nowhere to go, and at least I had a warm place, and I was going to get a turkey dinner, and. He says, well, let me take you to dinner to compensate you for your lost turkey dinner. And they go to a really nice restaurant where they dance. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Where they dance and start to like each other and discover that they're from towns that are about 50 miles apart. In Indiana. Yep. And so he offers to drive her home. And along the way, they get lost. They get stranded in a field where after they crash through a fence, the next morning, the farmer confronts them with a shotgun places them under citizen's arrest, takes them to a justice of the peace where they're trying to lie to get away with the situation. And it quickly devolves. So Lee Leander drops a match in a garbage can, starts a fire so they can flee. So they're actually then fugitives from justice. So they hightail it out of Pennsylvania and decide when we come back, we're probably going to have to go by way of Canada because we're technically fugitives in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So they go to the, they go to her house first where her mother is not happy to see her. No. So John Sargent, played by Fred McMurray, takes her to his house. He openly tells his mother, Mrs. Sargent, played by Eula Bondi, that he's you know she's not his This isn't a love interest. This is why this I This is someone her. I'm prosecuting, but she had nowhere to go, so on and so forth. And, of course, over the preceding, what is it, basically seven days, yeah. eight days, they fall in love. Yeah, succeeding. Yeah. And on their way back, on their way home, they actually go by way of Canada. And it's really funny because at the Canadian border, they says, what's your reason? And he says, we're fugitives for justice, from justice. <laughs> and they just let him right in. And then they, yeah, it proceeds. They go back to court. Uh, Mr. Sargent's trying to get her off by being too harsh and, and trying to Alienate convince the, the jury. you know, yeah. and then she changes her plea and pleads guilty to the charges. And they yeah, have that, they have that ending where uh, they both completely fallen for each other. And she doesn't want, she wants to be cleansed. Yeah. And so she wants to serve her time. And then, and he offers to marry her on the spot. And she says, well, when I get out and there's nothing over my head and you've had ample time to, to consider it, then maybe. Yeah. So, which is an ending that, Felt kind of bold. Yeah. But in thinking about it, it was kind of the only ending you could have done in 1940 as some variation on that. But if you were to do that kind of ending today, that would that would be... I mean, I, I think it plays quite effectively, even though it is an ending kind of necessitated by the time. Yeah. I mean, you saw it 
maybe you didn't see it coming in terms of what was going to happen. You saw them falling in love. Yeah. But did you see the actual twist at the ending? I hadn't really thought about it much beyond that. I knew they were going to end up together. Yeah. But I didn't know how they were going to get out of the the little legal. I thought she was, like he said, I think the thought she was going to get acquitted. Yeah. So I hadn't quite seen that twist coming. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. What are your first thoughts on this? Well, so when we were watching this, we watched this off of, uh, TCM. TCM. Yep. And they said it's directed by Mitchell Lyson. And written by Preston Sturgis. And oh. I, I got all happy because I love Preston Sturgis. Which is part of why I chose this. And you know, he was a he was a pretty prolific, successful screenwriter. He has huge bill in this. He's one of the first yep. names you see, and it's big he has his own card. And, you know, he just made such wonderful movies. The Great McGinty, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, Hail the Conquering Hero, The Lady Eve. He's just a, a wonderful filmmaker who we will probably return to at some point on this podcast, who burned brightly during the war years, and then his career kind of dried up afterwards. But he had this four- or five-year period in which it was just hit after hit. And so the fact that his name was associated with it made me excited to see it. And I watched it, and I was thinking f- for the first half that it was pretty fair, and and it's and I was thinking, you know, it just it's it, I, I don't see this spark. Sturgis is obviously better when he's directing his own material, and somebody else isn't directing it, because we learned from the introductory and postscript uh, commentary on TCM that the, the director and him had some disagreements. The director cut large portions from the script and made the McMurray remade the McMurray character. I think probably that one's probably in the interest of the movie. I I would agree. But it wasn't until they got to the town, well it, when they got to her town, yeah. and you realize this is why she became who she became because that mother would have been oppressive. The mother hates her daughter and is not shy about it. And like you're bad. You're bad, and I don't want you here. And so McMurray feels awful, and so takes him to spend Christmas. Well, especially with his since it was his idea to bring her back yeah. to her hometown, uh, and which she after hadn't been, he bonded her out, and she has nowhere to go. She hadn't and, been there in forever. Yeah, it's uh, since before her father died, and when she arrives, she finds out that her mother's remarried and doesn't even have the same last name anymore. But once they get to his family, you just fall in love with them. They're just yeah. so they're just so charming, and His that's where it really Aunt takes Emma, off. Yeah, played by Elizabeth Pattinson and Willie, played by Sterling Holloway, who Nate had to point out to me is the original voice of Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, which Rob said he he didn't really see until he started singing. Yes, and 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 you're right. Once he sings, like he's singing like Winnie the Pooh. He doesn't necessarily talk so much. There's parts of it in the voice, but he's he's playing with the voice a bit when he's doing Winnie the Pooh. But when he's singing, it's the same voice. So this is a fun character. So it's Chili Willie Sims. Who is he? What is his relationship to the family? My assumption was that he was some sort of someone from the town who had nowhere to go perhaps no real family and that the sergeant family just basically took him in and employed him just so that he had somewhere to go. That's yeah. That's once you said that, it's like, that's exactly what this guy is. It's like, they're such kindly uh, sisters and they're, they're just great. And, and the way uh, McMurray's very upfront with his mom early on, it's like, I'm going to give you the context of this. 
but the aunt is like, oh, God, so get, get yeah, those the two together. Trying to help Barbara stand. And uh, when when they're going to the country dance for New Year's, and they're putting her in the they're corset, put, putting her in, in clothes from forty years earlier. And when well, he said that they're at this barn dance. They're supposed to play the part of the Hicks that they, the Hicks you know. everybody thinks we are. And when they're digging the dress out from storage, there is a newspaper that says Teddy refuses to seek third term, which would be from 1908. Yeah. So, which is also a, a double joke in 1940 because his uh, cousin Franklin would break president in uh, 1940 and run for a third term. Yeah, it's just. Uh, it, it, when they get her up in that get-up and uh, they have their, their hick dance and uh, you get some sense of the community and I, just, I was just I was charmed I was really the first half I'm like this is nah this is fair but once you meet the extended family of both sides it stops being so forgettable like like the, the part where they're taken into the justice of the peace in the little Pennsylvania town it's kind of like that could be in any movie. It's yeah. like like it's 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 funny enough, but it's it's just it's like it's this really Preston Sturgis kind of phoning this in, but it gets to it it gets to have a lot. I didn't think there was much substance in the first half, but it it really gets deeper. Not that it's a deep movie, but it has that kind of warm chicken soup kind of quality to the second to the second half. It's just very pleasant. Yeah. And and it, it it really grows. Yeah, it lands. It's it's sentimental and yeah. Anyways, and the what problematic did, portion goes away after yeah. the first half. Well, we'll go back to the problematic portion in a minute. But what did you think of Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray together as a couple? I thought it worked. And and the first half of the film, Barbara Stanwyck looks very nice. She's dressed very well. All those types mm-hmm. of things. But I was like, oh, you know, she's just a relatively average leading lady. And then when they're at the house after they get back from the barn. There's a scene, and I was like, "Wow, she really is strikingly beautiful." Yeah, you know, where she's getting, she's brushing out her hair. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And the mom comes in to try and convince her to not fall in love with her son. And yeah, yeah. Anyways, so they work together again, most notably in Double Indemnity, which mm-hmm. is what I know them as a couple from, and they are steamy in that. So in this, the way it started out, I'm like, I'm not feeling that sizzle. But the sizzle develops yeah. uh, by the end, and, and they, that, they're good together. Um, Niagara Falls scene works, and mm-hmm. also that closing scene really works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost like a different movie. Yeah, like it has its its definite. It the way it changes in tone, but also stays consistent. I have used before. I, I don't know with with you, but with other people, that probably the best film that I could think of like a film that does changing tone well is Sullivan's Travels which is a Preston Sturgis comedy from a from about a year after this which has parts where it's fairly broad and parts where it's borders on dark yeah and this film doesn't really border on dark but it it it, it, it gets, gets dark and when they darker, go to her, yeah, her mom's, mom's house. That is, yeah. that is. But that's a very brief scene. It's, it's they stumbled upon Pottersville from. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's just like this town. No, I don't yeah. like this place. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Speaking of It's a Wonderful Life, Fred McMurray's mother is played by Beulah Bondi. Mm-hmm. Beulah Bondi was a professional mother on screen. She played Jimmy Stewart's mother 
several times, most notably in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's Wonderful Life, both directed by Frank Capra. But a few years ago, I stumbled upon the tragic story of the death of Beulah Bondi, and I'm going to read from Wikipedia. Bondi died from pulmonary complications caused by broken ribs, suffered when she tripped over her cat in her home on January the 11th, 1981, at the age of 92. Wow. She's an old cat lady. Tripped over a cat. Yeah. Caused her death. That's, wow. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And she never had kids, never married, even though she was famous as a mother on screen. Yeah. And do we want to go back to Willie? Oh, well, not to uh, Willie, to uh, to Rufus. Yeah, we should should probably talk about Rufus. Rufus is, there's a scene later on in the film where they're lost at night and they're driving around. And Barbara Sandwick sees something. He's like, look out, it's an elephant. And then the camera cuts to it, and it's actually a thrashing machine that has, like, winter cover over it. So it looks kind of like an elephant. It is the elephant in this film, or rather it would be, were it not for Rufus, who is the black house servant, manservant, McMurray manservant, who is an awful racial caricature and an idiot and... Wow, he's uncomfortable. Yeah, I was. Yeah, <laughs> uncomfortable is is pretty yeah. pretty darn accurate. You're like, oh my goodness. Well, the scene that you're alluding to. So they end up sleeping in the car, and before they fall asleep, he reaches in the back seat and pulls out food, and he says, "He's not a smart man, but he sure can cook." Yeah, or something to that effect. Uh, but yeah, it was his only the only scenes that, that he's in. Simple minded. I mean, the only scenes he's in is at the apartment. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, he's he is. Yeah, if you could edit this film to get rid of him, <laughs> if you could edit this film to get rid of him, this would probably be a ten star movie. Yeah, he's he's a problem. Yeah, yeah, and well, I think we're gonna have to factor that in when we get to ratings. Yeah, there are some funny lines from this movie. Yeah, so when they get to the house, the mom, he's in, but he misses. ain't home. Save it for your radio act. Oh, I missed that one. It's a, it's, it appears to be a Amos and Andrew reference at the expense of Rufus. Yeah. John Sargent, when he gets home, Mrs. Sargent wants him to play the piano. And he's trying to play it off like he doesn't know how to play the piano. In fact, he, he actually states the line. He says, I took $14 worth of piano lessons at one point, one point and they won't let me forget it. <laughs> and then as there, he finally goes to sit down at the piano to play the piano, which he claims he only knows one song. The mother's, you know, saying you know, don't believe him. He plays just fine. And she says the line, he plays really well when you consider the size of his hands. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know why, but that really made me laugh. Yeah. And then of course, when they're going back into Canada, he says, I'm a fugitive from justice. There was one line that we didn't catch the, for sure if we heard it correctly or what the reference was. And it's Hikers when they're and hobbits. Yeah, and so it's they're back in the judge's chambers in the courthouse, and John Sargent's boss is in the judge's chambers with the him. Judge, and the judge is telling judge him, I saw them at the him. restaurant, yeah. and mm-hmm. he's going to throw this case, you know, to get her off, and this and that and the other. So he's listening from back in the judge's chambers, but before the judge steps steps out, he he throw, states this line something about hikers and hobbits. Yeah. There's a, I don't know if it's then, but it, it might be a little later. But it, it, I, I think we're, I don't want you in jail with hike. Somebody says the line hikers and hobbits. 
Right? Yeah. It sounds like Hikers and Hobbits. Now, oh, you're right. It's after she's remanded to the jail. Yeah. Now, it could be because um, The Lord of the Rings came out in like 1937, and this is okay. 1940. So Hobbits is a term. I'm not sure it's etymology or how, how much, if at all, it predated that. But it's just a weird phrase. Yeah. It is an odd phrase, and it doesn't make a lot of sense now. Mm. But in context, maybe it made more sense. You don't have to be a horse to judge a horse show. Yeah. And they keep giving each other the same perfume. Yeah. So it's the same that one of last year. Isn't that what you got, got her last? Oh, I didn't run. He, the store told me this was the new thing. Uh, Lee Lander, at one point, she says, that gag sold, it's got whiskers. She says that joke in at least one other movie. Yeah. Because I, I remember hearing Stan would talk about a gag sold that has whiskers on it. Yeah. Well, and then at, at his apartment, when she thinks that he's bonded her out to obtain favors, she says, now, one of these days, one of you boys is going to start one of these scenes differently, and one of us as girls, girls is going to drop dead from surprise. I also like how she uh, claims to be a uh, ball dancer, a bubble dancer. Yeah. When uh, they're asking her profession in Pennsylvania with the Justice of the Peace, and she does the miming, like the people, women dancing with the bubbles in like a Busby Berkeley show. And, of course, Barbara Stanwyck started her career as a chorus girl. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie, despite the scenes. With Rufus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, with Fred's Snowflake tunes. Despite that, I enjoyed this film. Again, it's it's almost easy to forget that he's there, except you can't forget that yeah. he's there. <laughs> yeah. But this still was a pleasant movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it. I, I really when it, I got excited when I heard Sturgis's name. The first half, I'm like, this is interchangeable. There, there's not much to it. But once they get to Indiana, it really goes up a, a level, and just. I was won over by it. I was really charmed. Uh, How would you rate this film? Movie. I'm going to give it three because of, of its weaker first half. It pulls it off Pulls it off in the second half of the game. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think I can really give it more than three, and I'm probably a seven. So I wanted, to, eight. I wanted to give this four and nine when the movie ended. Mm-hmm. And then I started to think back at it, and I glanced at its aggregate rating. It has an aggregate score on IMDb of 7.6 stars. And my knee-jerk reaction was, that seems low. Mm-hmm. But then when you go and look at you know the part with Mr. Tunes in it, you have to account for that somehow. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is probably more in the three, three and a half, and on the high end, you know, an eight. And again, I keep going back to the fact that the first half of the movie is just okay. Yeah. But it's still a solid film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would not be opposed to watching this again at some point. Yeah, it'd probably be worth a revisit. Yeah. It's, a, it's a charmer. Would you recommend this film to people? I would, but I would tell them about Rufus. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It does make me want to do, maybe at some point in the future, I've talked about doing the Preston Sturgis Month, but Barbara Stanwyck could support a month. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, anything else on this one? No, I think we've said all we have to say. Okay. Then I'm Rob. I'm Nate. And this is Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. According to the director, the role of Lee's mother was originally to be Marjorie Wayne. When Maine's, Wayne's, when Maine's performance proved to be Far too broad and overdone. The scene was reshot with Georgia Kane. Hmm. Yeah, she that whole scene, that house, 
and just that vibe. I mean, that just, it's so efficient the way it totally explained her. Yeah. Well, the uh, cross-eyed uncle, when they get to... Uh-huh. Sergeants. Yeah. That portrait that they used for the cross-eyed uncle is the same portrait used in the Barbara Stanwyck film, Ball of Fire. Oh, it was completed. The film was completed eight days ahead of schedule and fifty thousand dollars under budget. And Barbara Stanwyck, as they yeah. talked about in the, some of the TCM, and which I've heard for the longest time, was just a pleasure to work with. Everybody well, with so they attribute that's finishing early and under budget to the professionalism of Barbara yeah. Stanwyck. Oh, so Preston Sturgis hung around the set and became friends with Barbara Stanwyck, and promised to write her to write a film just for her. Which turned out to be Lady Eve. Lady Eve, which is a great film where she's opposite Henry Fonda. So, yeah. I I was genuinely surprised and impressed by this film. Yeah. So, okay. Did I make up for it? I think so. I told you that I was holding back a home run, so I felt okay taking the wild swing. It on. was a bit of a mixed bag, but at least it wasn't mixed nuts. I don't know if that's going to be as good as Gucci Gucci Coo, yeah, but... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You can see now why I felt a little more comfortable taking the wild swing on mixed nuts when I was holding this back. Okay. Fair enough. You didn't know though. You didn't know. You I know expected this would be good. This was this was my So I took the wild swing on mixed yeah. nuts expecting this to be my home run. Hmm. So, yeah. <laughs>